Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, and at Bloomberg.com. Now, I want to bring in Lynn Franco, Director of Economic Indicators of the Conference Board, uh, taking a look at the latest reading, which is very positive. U.S. consumer confidence increased in November from a month earlier to the highest level since July 2007. Lynn, this seems to be a screamingly good sign. Is there anything I'm missing here? Not at all. I mean, uh, we've had a good uh, rise in consumer confidence. It's pretty much across the board. Consumers are telling us that current conditions uh, have strengthened even more. And coming on the heels of a good GDP report this morning, I think that's welcome news. And expectations are that we're going to continue along this path. Can you explain what the details are? Because in looking at the GDP report, that 3.2% third quarter print, it seemed as though consumer spending is what's driving that move higher. Absolutely. It is consumer spending that's driving uh, the economy. And based on these confidence uh, report that we have today, it looks like it's going to be the consumer that continues to drive the economy, especially when we take a look at the particular at the income question that we had. We had some rather good news there, which I think is going to support spending. And we've seen signs of that already with the holiday numbers coming in. You know, Lynn, one thing that I've been watching is the Citigroup's uh, economic surprise index, which has surged recently uh, to the highest levels in... Well, in a couple of months, which is still significant to me because there has been um, a feeling that, you know, the economy will grow, but it's slower pace. But the data is coming in better than people are expecting. What are all of those economists missing? Um, I'm not sure that we're missing very much. I think uh, we're all just happy to see that the consumer remains rather resilient. Um, and I think we all say, expect growth to continue along this path, which I think is very welcome news. Um, and, you know, when we take a look at these uh, figures that we got in today, it's it's more of more good news. And I think it's going to spell, you know, good news for, for fourth quarter growth, holiday sales, and for the economy as we head into 2017. You know, Lynn, one of the other reports we got today had to do with home prices. And we we're taking a look at the S&P Case-Shiller uh, CoreLogic National Index. Prices for U.S. for homes in 20 U.S. cities climbing 5.1% in September. I'm just wondering how that works with increases in mortgage rates. We've seen interest rates move just a little bit higher. They're still at historical lows. But how is that consistent with the higher cost of money? Uh, well, what we're seeing there, obviously, is, uh, you know, that sort of impedes first-time buyers or lower-income folks from sort of stepping into the housing market. On the flip side, the price appreciation helps consumers' wealth. Uh, so I think we're seeing sort of a dual effect here where not only have home prices gone up, we're seeing stock prices going up, and we're seeing earnings uh, in terms of what people are taking home going up. So I think across those fronts, that's why we're seeing in our income question a more optimistic consumer. Um, we also got uh, GDP numbers that the U.S. economy expanded more than previously reported last quarter due to more household spending. So, you know, 
does it seem like there has been enough momentum that's been gathering steam for long enough uh, that, that we can see these sort of upward surprises for a while and that the consumer will really support uh, faster growth in the U.S.? Well, I think what we expect to see is consumers supporting growth, not necessarily much stronger growth. So we're not anticipating growth of, you know, 3.5% or 4%, but we are going to at least anticipate that the consumer will continue to drive the economy. As far as uh, the future, because that's what you're, you know, as an economist, we always want you to get that, that crystal ball out. What, what does the report today tell us about the, the rest of the quarter? I think it tells us that it's going to be a consumer-driven quarter. We're seeing consumers telling us that the momentum that we've been seeing building up is continuing into the fourth quarter. And this is shopping. This is retail, or is this spending on a variety of items? A variety of items, but I think in terms of spending, it's a very favorable outlook that we're seeing coming out of today's report. Happy Black Friday. Lynn Franco, Director of Economic Indicators of the Conference Board, uh, taking a look at some of the positive indications that we've been getting. And it's not just Black Friday. I mean, Cyber Monday, my colleagues reported that more than $1 billion of sales in one day were made on mobile phones. Click, click, and buy. All right, now let's talk about oil. We've got uh, an expert. Anne-Marie Horden is uh, live in Vienna for a Bloomberg uh, executive producer. Anne-Marie, what can you tell us about OPEC, Russia, and the conflict that exists inside this oil exporting consortium? Over the last hour or two, actually, Bloomberg had an amazing scoop, and we learned that um, Saudi Arabia is said to be ready to walk out of all talks, reject doing a deal without any compromise by Iran and Iraq. So they're really taking a hard line here. Meanwhile, the Iranian oil minister arrived in the last hour as well. Um, he is saying that they will not cut production. You know, this verbally came from his mouth earlier this morning um, in, uh, in late in Europe time. Um, he, uh, the oil ministry of Iran tweeted that they will not have a cap. And then before he came to Vienna, he spoke on state TV saying it's the will of the people to continue pumping, to go back to pre-sanctioned levels. Um, and then when he arrived here, he is not budging. They say they will not cut production. The Saudis say without them, they're not doing a deal. So it's looking to be quite a sticking point here. Um, one analyst described it as a Greek tragedy, uh, but he said maybe sometime for a happy ending. But they're really coming down to the wire. Is there any chance that if they do not come to a resolution that there is another time in the near future where they can come together and try to resolve some of the differences? Well, if you if you look at the past year in terms of uh, an unusual OPEC year, in April, this happened where talks collapsed in Doha, and then it took them another four, five, six months uh, to reach an agreement. If talks collapse here, uh, anything can happen. They can decide to meet next week. But likely what would happen is um, they'll see where oil prices land. As we see what some analysts are saying in the 20s in January, uh, you better believe OPEC is definitely going to start talking within each other to try to get the price back up. Anne-Marie, just quickly, uh, Iran and Saudi Arabia, uh, are they at odds uh, over this politically or is this because Iran just needs the money? Well, no. For the Iranians, it is definitely political. They've said for years they've had sanctions, and uh, Saudi has been able to pump. You know, for Saudi, for the last past few years, it's been about market share, pump at will as much as they can. Um, so this is political baggage. I mean, what also what we're hearing being discussed 
is about 7% of oil that the Saudis want, uh, that the Iranians want, that the Saudis don't. So uh, the, Iran- the Iranians want to cut about, uh, want to pump at 4 million barrels a day. The Saudis are said to offer something like 3.7 and change. So if you think about it, it's not a ton of barrels, but they are literally fighting over every barrel of oil. Right. And this really comes down to politics. Anne-Marie Hordern, live in Vienna, talking about OPEC talks. Uh, Anne-Marie Hordern of Bloomberg News, thank you so much for being with us for a look at what the full implications are of this uh, OPEC discussion. I want to go to Rich Pontillo, Senior Director at NASDAQ, specializing in utility, oil, and gas sectors. Rich, how big of a casualty would it be for uh, for OPEC if they were not to come to a resolution here? Yeah, hi, good morning, Lisa and Tim. Uh, I think it would be uh, fairly significant uh, given what's transpired over the last few months. Uh, If you go back to September, uh, OPEC members held informal meetings in Algiers, and the outcome there was that they uh, were able to draw a consensus that they would agree at least uh, on a production uh, on on a production cap. So I think that would certainly contradict directly uh, in terms of if they co- if they cannot reach a resolution tomorrow. Uh, I think it will only further cement uh, almost the the end of any meaningful influence that OPEC has going forward on the global oil markets. Uh, again, given its lack of ability to coalesce a consensus, uh, again, particularly especially after uh, after the uh, the the informal agreement that was reached uh, in late September. Well, we're seeing the price of oil decline. It's down nearly 4% right now. Um, Rich, the uh, the combination of uh, politics and uh, crude oil, how does that play out in the, in the United States? I was looking at uh, a Goldman Sachs report today saying that they say prices to be moderately higher next year. They talk about the structural shift uh, in the cost curve of oil. What, is that, what does that mean? How did they get to that conclusion? Yeah, that's a good point, Tim. And actually, uh, um, myself, I, w- I was reading that Goldman Sachs note, and, and just as a side note, that uh, that report cited there's implied volatility in the near-term options market uh, of a roughly $6 price swing right. in either direction on Brent oil futures uh, in response to tomorrow's meeting. So basically, there is a lot hinging on this decision tomorrow, uh, and we're going to see a very violent uh, binary effect uh, once that outcome is made public. Um, in terms of next year, again, I, I, I think they're obviously trying to cover both sides of any potential decision. Um, if you look at what has transpired in the U.S. over the last 12 to 24 months, right. uh, you've seen domestic producers uh, become much right. more efficient. Rich Pontio, I'm sorry, we're going to have to cut it there. Senior Advisory uh, Solutions at NASDAQ. Thank you so much for joining us. This is Bloomberg. All right, joining us now is Chris Ailman. He is the uh, manager, chief investment officer of CalSTRS, the nation's second largest public pension fund, assets totaling about $192 billion as of uh, the end of October. Uh, their investment philosophy, long-term patient capital buying, a long-term net cash flows and capital gain potential at a reasonable price. Chris Aylman, thank you for being with us. It's always a pleasure. My favorite radio show. Well, we Aww. love having you. Uh, thank you. Uh, reason, I More. like that. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. You like <laughs> Carry on. Reasonable <laughs> price. I always love it when you reasonable. Uh, reasonable is intuitive, but also 
analytical. How do you determine reasonable price? Um, you have to look at historical norms, and you really have to focus in on things like price earnings ratios or cap rates in real estate and look at the price you're paying relative to where it's been, say, over the last 30 years. And I think that gives you a guide of whether you're paying up for something or whether it's reasonably priced. You're not going to find out investments at a bargain very often. People hate them if they're at a bargain. So, But a lot of it is what you guys were just talking about. It's psychology. Um, and understanding how investors think, and they tend to chase markets and run them up to extremes. Um, Chris, I wanted to ask you, there was a story uh, that I was reading last night about CalPERS, the biggest public U.S. pension in the country with almost $300 billion of assets, and how they're actively debating whether or not to substantially lower their assumed rate of return going forward uh, from about 7% or a little more than 7% to 6%, which is a, which is a massive move uh, in, in, in pension land. Can you talk a little bit about what your current assumed rate of return is and what's appropriate over the next uh, three decades or so? Ours is seven and a half. Um, and what you're seeing across the country is pension plans reevaluating that. They're getting pressure from their actuaries, their investment consultants to, to reassess what they think is, as you said, over a 30-year time period. So it's not just going to be the one-year return or even the five-year return. And when I ask people to step back and say, well, wait a minute, what's a realistic return over the next 30 years? That's where you come into somewhere in the seven. We used to say it was as much as eight. But demographically, the U.S. Uh, is maturing. And so you're going to expect a little bit less growth out of it. But it's been a very active debate. Certainly, uh, CalPERS has been the most vocal about it. Uh, our board is evaluating that all the time. It's a constant debate. But it's, again, since it's a 30-year number, you're not going to change it overnight. You're going to really just try and look at what's historically happened. Let's talk about what the consequences would be for lowering the assumed rate of return that much. How much more would taxpayers, uh, you know, workers, how much more would they have to contribute to these plans? Well, you hit it on the head. There are only two inputs to a retirement plan, the contributions. And that, that goes for whether it's a defined benefit plan in a public setting or your own 401k. The two inputs are your contribution rate and your investment return. So you want a reasonable investment return, and that's what you're trying to decide. It's back to that question of what's reasonable to assume for the next 30 years. The minute you lower that assumption, it definitely goes to the contribution rates. And in many cases, that's the employer first, but then also in some cases, the employee. And that's what's always a big debate. But for, for California, by and large, it's going to mostly hit the employer on that side of it. I'm glad you used the word debate, but I'm going to just shift it a little bit because there is a lack of debate when it comes to ideas that people do not like. For example, let's say you have a fund manager who happens to sit on the board of an institute that has a position that is contrary to, let's say, a union leader whose members are also your customers, your clients. Is this intolerance that seems to infect not only the political discourse, but also the social discourse, finding ideas that you only agree with. Is that something you think is here to stay? Or as a manager, a steward of capital, uh, do you find that that is just making things ridiculously difficult? I mean, you're hiring people to make you money, not to give them your political views. Exactly. Our job is to find the best money managers we can. Uh, and I've often said, I don't care whether I like a money manager or dislike them. I don't care whether they're, they're male or female, whether they're purple, they're green, they're from Mars. They just have to make us money, and that's what we want to focus on. 
But you're right. What's happened in our country and obviously around the world is society's gotten more fragmented and therefore everything is is more critical. There are fewer people in the middle. So there has been a big, big debate and a big discussion with us about factoring those kinds of considerations in when we hire money managers of not just whether they make us money and what's their philosophy, but what are they doing? What's the culture of the firm? What is the firm doing? What are the principals doing? And that's something that we're really trying to figure out, okay, how do we factor that in? Frankly, my biggest concern has been less that, but more sustainable investing. Are they thinking long-term in their investment philosophy? Are they thinking long-term personally? because I want them to incorporate things like sustainability into their decision model, not just what are they doing politically this year or next. They've got to do what's right for their clients. We're the source of their capital, so you have to pay attention to that. And that's the best way I can describe it is they have to be at least aware of whether their actions are helping their clients or making their life miserable. Money managers don't want to get a phone call from me saying, you are giving me a headache. And here's the problem. Right, that you got a letter or you got an email from someone, a union leader perhaps, that says, I don't like this money manager that you hired because they sit on the board of something that I disagree with. Correct. And and what they'd rather, they don't want that phone call at all from me, but what they'd rather know is I'm unhappy with their investment performance rather than, and, and the problem is you're getting into First Amendment rights, their own individual activities. Um, how far do we go before we question, you know, my activities? I like to ride my bike. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? Good thing. I objectively say that it's a good thing for you to ride a bike as a fellow bike rider. Um, I want to talk a little bit about uh, when you're talking about money managers, a shift away from hedge funds um, and even among some pensions to more indexed strategies. Have you also uh, seen a sort of similar shift among your own funds? We've been long index funds and overweight index funds for almost 30 years. So we very much we, we very much believe in, in index funds and have doubted the value of active management. And I think when you look back at, at 2016, you'll say it was a year where the equity market traded in a channel. It should have helped active managers. They should have been able to outperform, yet they won't. And to me, that's just another year of compounding evidence that active management is really losing its ability to operate. And I think investors really have to question the price that they're paying, because that's where it gets killed. The price is so high in active management. They've got to question it. It's not worth the money, people. It's not worth the cost of active management. People should make their retirement plans in passive investments. Kathleen Sebelius is the former head of Health and Human Services, uh, former governor of Kansas, uh, joining us now. Uh, governor Sebelius, thank you very much for being with us. Glad to be with you, Pim. Now, uh, just wondering if you could give us your uh, impression and your uh, thoughts on uh, the selection of Tom Price uh, as the uh, new head of the Department of Health and Human Services uh, by President-elect uh, Donald Trump. He is a representative, uh, Republican representative uh, from Georgia. Well, I had the opportunity to work with Dr. Price um, during my tenure as secretary. He served on the Ways and Means Committee, which has a lot of jurisdiction over HHS. So I, I would start by saying he um, he is a health care provider, and I think that's helpful in the Department of Health and Human Services to have that broad personal background. He also um, has served on a key committee with HHS jurisdiction. So he 
will come to the post, assuming he's confirmed with, uh, again, an array of experience that that will be very helpful. I think HHS has a huge footprint um, covering everything from, you know, NIH kind of gold standard on research throughout the world, CDC with public health, which is in Georgia, uh, Dr. Price's home area, um, you know, CMS that covers almost one out of every three Americans is involved in Medicare or Medicaid. So there's a, a, a very substantial uh, base of 11 operating agencies. And I think it's really helpful to have someone who has familiarity with a lot of the programs. Right. Dr. Price is uh, an orthopedic surgeon uh, from Georgia, as you just mentioned. Um, and he's also been a vocal critic of the Affordable Care Act or Obamacare um, and was working to uh, disable parts of it. Based on your experience working with him, uh, Governor Sebelius, what's your sense on what aspects of the Affordable Care Act he's most critical of and will try to disable first? Well, I think you'll have to let um, Congressman Price speak for himself in that regard. I do um, know that everyone, including Dr. Price, uh, has been um, skeptical of the cost of uh, health insurance provided in the marketplace. And you know, frankly, I think it it would be wonderful if uh, there is a plan to fully insure the individuals, the 20 million people who now have insurance through various programs, and um, and um, lower the cost. I think that would be a widely applauded move. Um, I do know that uh, he has not voiced as much enthusiasm over the pre-existing condition limitation, making sure insurance companies actually don't lock out or price out people with some kind of pre-existing condition. In fact, he has in the past supported high-risk pools as an alternative, and I think that is potentially very, very dangerous for a lot of Americans who have serious health conditions because a high-risk pool by its very nature is not insurance coverage and is bound to be hugely expensive. So I think um, around the goal that everyone deserves a right to health insurance, everyone should have access to best care at the lowest possible cost, I think there'll be a lot of bipartisan support for ideas he may bring to the table. Uh, governor, I wonder if you could speak a little bit about your future plans. You're two-time uh, governor of the state of uh, Kansas, uh, obviously serving in the uh, Obama administration, uh, but also you were uh, the former chair of the Democratic Governors Association. Uh, do you have any plans to participate in, uh, actively participate in the ongoing uh, efforts uh, of the Re Democrat Party to uh, make their voice heard? Well, I certainly will be engaged and involved with uh, individuals and groups who are eager to um, save the health program that has made such a difference in 20 million people's lives. Does it have to look exactly the same? No. Um, but you'll but continue to speak out on issues like pro-choice, which uh, you're a big advocate of. 
Absolutely. I think women's health and women's choices and um, making sure that Americans don't go back to the point where insurance companies get to pick and choose who gets coverage and who doesn't uh, is progress that I would hate to see unraveled. And I, I think that there is a lot of support for um, making sure that we don't return to the days where only people who could be medically underwritten by insurance companies and allowed into a insurance plan if they bought individual coverage uh, would be covered. So, yes, I feel very strongly we've made huge progress in women's health, huge progress in individuals' health who didn't have affordable coverage in their workplace, and I will very much continue to be engaged and involved in those efforts. I want to thank you very much for spending time with us. Kathleen Sebelius uh, is a former two-term uh, governor of the state of Kansas and former uh, cabinet secretary of health and human services. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at iTunes, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm out there on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm out there on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.